Greetings, and welcome to First Impressions, a production of Marginalia Radio. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. Thanks for listening. Joining me today is Chloe Starr. She's an associate professor at Yale University's Divinity School, and she's here to speak to us about her new book, Chinese Theology, Text, and Context, published by Yale University Press in 2016. Welcome, Chloe. How are you? I'm great. Thanks very much, Christian. This was a, a very enjoyable book and one that I think lots of listeners will benefit from in the sense that it's very comprehensive, but at the same time covers a topic that not all of us are immediately familiar with. So thanks for writing a wonderful book. In kind of setting up the context here for us, you talk a little bit about scholarship on Christianity in China, which has largely been historical, versus Chinese theology in the sense of what you're looking at in your book. Can you talk a little bit about what you aim to do in your book and how does it break new ground in relation to some of the previous scholarship on Christianity in China? Okie doke, thanks. The book Chinese Theology aims to do two things. The first thing it tries to do is to set out some overall timeline and understanding of the history and development of Christian theology in China. And the second thing is to make a very specific argument that texts are important, the texts of this theology need reading and thinking about, and that we can't really understand Chinese theology until we have a grasp of its craft, its literary structure, its textual form. So there have been a few other books in English, not very many, on Chinese theology. But as you say, the great majority of work on Chinese Christianity has been looking at historical periods done by historians. There's a lot of work in Chinese, especially coming out of Hong Kong on Chinese theology, but relatively little in English. And there is a question of, you know, what is Chinese theology? And part of the problem is that it isn't an academic discipline in mainland China in the way it is in other countries. Chinese theology is only taught in seminaries. And, you know, people would think it was a joke subject if you talk about shenxue, Chinese theology, the study of God, the study of deities. That's, you know, akin to kind of superstition. So why would it be an academic subject? So, and because of the structure of education in, in China, seminaries are totally separate from the, the state university system and students can't move between the two very easily. So th- there isn't a widespread understanding in contemporary China of what Chinese theology might be. Now, this point about Chinese literary form and the social meaning of text becomes uh, central to your argument throughout the book. So could you set us up a little bit of what are some of the ways in which reading patterns or shared textual backgrounds or even just this idea of of common heritage, how did that shape theological writing and texts? I'm arguing that the textual reading traditions in China, which developed out of Chinese classics, the Confucian texts, and the fact that in traditional China, you had to learn the entire classics. The corpus of classics would be known, literally, they would be able to repeat by heart at any given moment in time every sentence of the entire classical corpus, if they were well-trained. And this sort of imbibing of text and the function of texts, which is, you know, in the sort of classical moral tradition, to enable you to become a moral person. By, By imbibing, ingesting texts, you became a good person, a moral person. Texts are a shared universe. So the fact that If I send a book manuscript or a text or even a poem out to you, you comment on it, you send it to your friend, they comment on it, they send it back to me. So we have a shared set of illusions and a shared sort of textual reading set that we all draw on and we all understand. So the text reading traditions therefore shape our cognition, what reading means, how we view the word of God. And in China, it's a 
collaborative form of reading and it's a textual amending tradition so there isn't a sense of a kind of pristine word of God that never gets commented on or amended or changed and it's a very relational reading. My reading is only interesting as much as I share it with you and you share it with somebody else. And and this makes a difference then to how Chinese Christians would approach the Bible and think about texts and biblical texts. In terms of thinking about theology, someone who's doing Western theology might come to your book and, and wonder why you're including some of the sources that you do. And so I, I guess the question here might be about genre, uh, whereas some of the sources that you're using are maybe unique and unexpected, but this might be based on a Western bias of what theology is. So could you tell us where do we find Chinese theology in the way you're, you're defining it? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I'm deliberately taking a very broad, some people may say too broad, understanding of what theology is. I'm taking it to literally mean speaking of God. I mean, theology is written in many different forms in Western and and Middle Eastern and other countries, not just in the sort of ideal systematic tome of, you know, Bart or somebody that we might think of. What I'm suggesting is that in the Chinese case, because there is very little systematic thinking of that form, we need to look for the theology where it exists. And that might be in our essays, but it might be in hymns or sermon texts, or it might be in biographies, it might be in the notes and jottings, this BG form, which every Chinese literatus you know, wrote on a regular basis. It's kind of like, you know, the modern blog post. Part of my argument is that because it's written in so many different textual forms, and these these all have their own generic conventions and categories and understandings, then we need to really look at those and how these texts are functioning before we can understand, you know, how Chinese theology speaks of Christ, of God, and of the, the sort of focal topics of any theology. Two examples might be in my chapter on Zhao Zichen, who is a theologian from the 1920s and 30s. He lives through until the 70s, but his main writing is in the Republican era. He writes a life of Jesus that draws on the Chinese biographical tradition as that tradition was changed in the historiographical shift of the late Qing into the 20th century. This text is full of classical allusions and of particular forms of narrative shift that are sort of common to Chinese novel forms and styles, and it draws on a whole range of different genres. And this is an example of, you know, it's quite different as a biography, as a life of Jesus to some of the other lives of Jesus that were being written in the 1920s and 30s in English and French. Now, your book largely does focus on the 20th century up until the present, but you set us up here thinking about this evolution from missionary theologies to more localized Chinese theologies. So can you just briefly tell us what occurred over this social and intellectual transformation that will help us think about the more recent period? So we often think of enculturation as a sort of late 20th century thing. But of course, in Chinese theology, it's been going on since the Nestorian era text, the Jingjiao. And what I suggest in the book, and it's not an entirely novel thesis, I just flesh it out, is that the creation of Chinese theology is essentially a three-stage process. In the Jesuit era, for example, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, it starts with missionaries learning Chinese, translating basic 
church texts into Chinese and developing initial teaching tools in Chinese. Then you have a, a period when the missionaries gain greater understanding. The Jesuits, they have better Chinese. They understand more what's necessary. They learn to write in a Chinese textual form. They learn how to argue with neo-Confucian Chinese philosophical thinking or contemporary Buddhists. And from that, they then improve the expression of this theology in Chinese. And, and it, they make it much more relevant to local people and to their listeners and, and readers. But the final stage and really the takeoff point for Chinese theology is when Chinese themselves begin to write and think. So native speakers working within their own heritage and textual and linguistic traditions. And I argue that that's the takeoff point for theology. And this happens throughout the 17th century, but it's again repeated when the Protestant missionaries first come to China in the 19th century. And they go through exactly the same stage, three-stage process of writing not great translations of Western Christian uh, liturgical biblical texts. And then there's a period of improvement, and then eventually their, their protégé, their Christian converts start writing and thinking and producing much more exciting and, and flamboyant Christian texts. And the period that really was one of the most exciting and voluminous in terms of production was the 1920s and 30s that you, you focus on in a, a few chapters of the book. What made this period so vibrant and what are, what are some of these exemplary Chinese theological texts that you, you examine from this period? Partly, it's a time of great change in China. You've had a political revolution, you've had a literary revolution, you've had the end of Confucian education system in 1905, the uh, 1911 revolution, the 1919 new culture movement and May 4th revolution. So you've had a huge amount of social change in China. At the same time, you've got the mission colleges and the Christian universities in China producing the first and second generation of students who then go on to study, many of them abroad for MDivs or PhDs in, you know, Vanderbilt, at Columbia, at Union in the States, and they come back to China. And many of these thinkers are bilingual. They're able to read the latest theological thought in English and the write in beautiful English, Latin, French, and yet they're also schooled in Chinese writings and traditions and thought. So there's this sort of confluence of education in a bicultural, bilingual mode, plus a lot of new exciting thought at the time. You have the social gospel movement and the sort of notion that Christianity can be used to save the nation, to improve China. It's drawn on as a kind of salvific religious sentiment and text and basis for doing something and improving China. So a couple of examples from this period that I talk about in the book. One is Wu Leichuan, who's often described as a Confucian Christian. He's one of the few people who actually didn't study abroad and didn't uh, read a foreign language very well. But he writes on Christianity and Chinese culture. Uh, a lot of people have studied him you know, as a Confucian scholar and thinker. But I also think he's very interesting, not just in saving China and the whole sort of saving the nation discourse, but he's also, he, he focuses on the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. How can we bring about the kingdom of God in China? And he rethinks all of Jesus's parables, for example, in a, in a really tightly economic lens, in a, in a very Marxian. He's drawing on people like Charles Gore and Rauschenbusch and some of the social gospel thinkers. But rereading everything in this very sort of earthbound, non-transcendent, we need to get out there, 
bring in better agriculture, do poverty alleviation, do all this work to bring the kingdom of God now in China and to use Christian thinking to go out and do that. Another example from this period is Xu Zongzi, who was a Jesuit, a Catholic, who was out of China for much of the 1910s, early 20s, came back and became a librarian and the archivist at the, the Shanghai Jesuit Center of Xu Jiahui. And he edited the Revue Catholique, the Shengzhou Zhazhi, the premier Catholic magazine of the day. And what's interesting about him is that in the front of that magazine, he would write all these official articles discussing, you know, Pius the Eleventh encyclical or discussing Leo XIII on labor laws and writing very formulaic official, you know, Catholic with a proper imprimatur uh, essays and articles looking at really, you know, a lot of questions, again, of social importance to China, the role of women, the position of women, uh, labor laws, economic, what we can do on poverty alleviation, these kinds of questions. But he also, at the back of the magazine, he inserts each week, and then he gathers all of these texts together, a series of these notes and jottings, these BG, sort of Chinese literati, thinking of, you know, whatever comes into the mind, these kind of blog post type thinking. And my argument is actually those are as much Chinese theology because they enable him to write in a Chinese voice on different topics and subjects that actually interest him and his readers. And these are just snippets. They're, you know, often they're not even religious in topic. They might be about um, suicide rates he's read about in the local newspaper. They might be, though, about topics of life and death and theological insight. They might just be about his book buying habits and where you can get a good cheap edition of something he's interested in purchasing. They're very scattered. But when you take them all together, you know, they give us a vision of what Chinese readers were interested in and how he draws these into a theological dialogue. Now, you also look at the, the middle period and some of the changing circumstances under the Chinese Communist Party. But the real kind of vibrancy, again, happens in a post-reform era from 1978 onward. Can you tell us a little bit about this period? How have shifting state policies affected the church? In what ways have these new circumstances shaped Chinese theological writing in the contemporary period? So as you know from your own work, religious expression is shut down pretty much between the early 60s and the late 70s in China. And it's only in from 1979 and 1981 onwards when the seminaries reopen and some of the priests who've been under house imprisonment are being rehabilitated that Christian life takes off again. And we discover later that Christian life has actually continued throughout the period. People have been meeting, whether clandestinely or in, in houses or whatever, and, and having Bible studies throughout this period. But it's only, as you say, in the 1980s and 90s that theology and theological writing and, and church writing takes off again. In the post-reform era in China, from 1978 onwards, there have effectively been three types of theology. There's been the state church theologies on the Roman Catholic and on the Protestant side. On the Protestant side, these are mainly about aligning with the socialist agenda. How do we think about Christian theology in terms of 
our socialist country and nation. And you have people like Ding Guangshun coming up with God of love, God as love, beyond the church. God's love is for everybody. And drawing on cosmic Christ and process theology thinking. So you have the state church thinking, and, and the theologians are able and are enabled to go on and carry on and do this writing. You also have the non-registered church bodies, writers and thinkers. So the underground church or the family churches, whatever you want to call those churches that meet outside that are unregistered and not acknowledged that exist in this sort of grey legal area in China. And especially in the late 90s and 2000s, they have been publishing profusely on the internet, maybe without an ISBN number, self-publishing and distributing through house church networks in China. And a lot of their theology, some of it is reformed, some of it is a sort of neo-Calvinist. It's influenced by Korean evangelical theology and especially American evangelical theologies. And the house churches themselves now have their own seminaries set up. And there has been a lot of writing on church state thinking and, and activism. And one of the writers I, I talk about and I've written about elsewhere is Wang Yi, who's a pastor in Chengdu in Sichuan of a non-registered church. He's quite well known because he wrote film reviews in, a, in the South China Morning Post, so in a, a secular newspaper setting for many years. He was a law professor and is interested in the sort of religious rights aspect. A lot of the leading thinkers in the house church movement Many of them have legal backgrounds or, you know, human rights angle interests as well. So he's one of those intellectual leaders in the house church movement. And his writing, again, comes in different forms. A lot of it is tweets and blog posts, as well as poetry and his essays in which he develops his theological arguments. And the third sort of sphere of theology in China is the academic. So a lot of the Sino-Christian theologians, the Hanyu Shanxue movement, are based in academy. Some people would say this is not really theology, they're cultural Christians, they're not theologians, and of course they wouldn't necessarily call themselves theologians because they're situated in literature departments or philosophy departments or history departments. But they're writing on Chinese Christian thought or Western Christian thought, and they're writing on mission history and translation and the theological implications of that. So the example I give in the book is Yang Huilin, who's a professor at Renmin University in China, and he works between literature and theology, looking at that nexus and drawing on Chinese sources, as well as a lot of critical thinkers and critical theorists from the 20th century in the West. One of the things that Yao Huilin has worked on is the notion of scriptural reasoning, whether China and whether Confucian religious texts could be used as a sort of part of a scriptural reasoning. And scriptural reasoning movement started with Jewish scholars in the US and then spread worldwide. And it's academics sitting around a table, drawing on their own insights on a particular scriptural text and offering them to others. So you stay within your own tradition in discussion, but you, you come from many different perspectives, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, on the same texts. And with David Ford in Cambridge, he's been involved in some Chinese scriptural reasoning sessions. A lot of his own work has been on missionary writers like James Legg and looking at how translation of the Chinese classics into English and translation of scriptural texts into Chinese, how that has, has happened and what sort of hermeneutical questions are involved in that. Well, Chloe, this is a wonderful book and obviously we haven't been able to get into all the, the weeds here because you do cover this stuff in great detail. 
But thank you for making the time to talk, and thanks for writing a wonderful book. Thank you very much. Again, we were talking about Chinese theology, text, and context, published with Yale University Press. Thanks to Chloe Starr for joining us today, and thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of First Impressions. First Impressions.